welcome to the Radio Democracy Podcast. I'm Jim Lutis. And I'm Mark Jacobson. And I'm Evelyn Farkas. We are three friends who met in the year 2000 on a trip to Germany sponsored by the German Marshall Fund and the German government. We drank a lot of beer over 10 days and we discussed democracy and security issues with other young national security ones. At the start of the new millennium, barely a decade after the end of the Cold War, more than a year before 9-11, before the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and before two popular vote wins that were nullified in the Electoral College, before Putin and Orban, and definitely before Trump, we took democracy in America, in Europe, and around the world for granted. 21 years later, we're older, we're more experienced, we can't drink as much beer, and we're worried about the health of American democracy and the appeal of democracy around the world. So here we are, three national security geeks who believe democracy is worth fighting for and definitely worth discussing. It's not a coincidence that we're launching this podcast on July 4th, the 245th anniversary of that moment when our forebearers said that this land is and ought to be free. Each podcast over the next several weeks will be a conversation about democracy, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're pro-democracy, and we think you should be too. It's 10.04 a.m. in New York, 5.04 p.m. in Kiev, and 7.34 p.m. in Mumbai. Whatever time it is where you are and wherever you are, this is Radio Democracy. Hello, everyone. So today we are going to focus on freedom and technology. Our founding fathers in 1776 declared their independence from the British monarchy. Today, of course, we enjoy freedom from external domination or control and a liberal democracy with checks and balances and a vibrant civil society. Our Bill of Rights protect our freedom of speech, movement and association, among other things. The balance of power, which is to say the rules about which party gets it and how and whether some rights are more important than others, are being fought over and decided today and tomorrow. They have always been up for negotiation. 2021 is no different. And yet it is different. Today, most of us feel that our democracy, our freedom to live according to the words our founding fathers wrote, are under assault from enemies foreign and domestic. We struggle to sort out how to protect human rights in America and how to advocate for the rights of others globally. Ultimately, of course, it is up to us to defend our democracy. Our democratic values, which include individual universal human rights, call upon us to defend the rights of others in China, Venezuela, or the Central Republic of Congo. They call for us to protect the privacy, liberty, and equal rights of every American. But this is not always easy. A reminder of how hard it is actually cropped up in a recent Washington Post article about a new exhibit on the Holocaust in Kansas City. The author, I hope I'm going to pronounce this right, David Fondrela, writes the following words. A subtle but crucial moment documented in the exhibit was the boycott of Jewish businesses called by the Nazis in 1933. This was a tipping point for humanity when history could have gone either way. Hitler was brand new as chancellor and the boycott was voluntary. Yet as John Stuart Mill warned, quote, bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing, end quote. Those who knew the boycott to be unjust allowed themselves to be cowed by the Nazi bully boys. It was a fatal first step down to hell. Failure to resist when resistance was relatively easy fostered compliance when resistance became perilous. 
So today, as we look around the world and we see people being imprisoned, raped, and killed just because of their ethnic or, or political identities, as Americans, we want to speak out and to help. And sometimes we press our government to advocate for minorities and victims of oppressive regimes. But it's about to become more complicated. What is happening abroad gives us a taste of the potential dangers we face here at home. Today, technology, cameras and social media, things that we thought increased our security and created convenient shortcuts are increasingly being used to reduce our freedom, our right to privacy. In the September 2020 Atlantic article, Ross Anderson describes how China has wired Xinjiang province and Hong Kong so that the government can now track everything the inhabitants are doing. The people of Hong Kong are still trying to fight for democracy, but they are stuck because every move they make can be recorded. As Anderson writes, they now can only achieve democracy if they get help from others from mainland China. Meanwhile, in Russia, they are pulling protesters off the metro and hauling them to jail based on surveillance cameras, which identified them as having participated in past protests. Surveillance technology is being sold all around the globe by Huawei, IBM, and others. It can help obviously cut down on crime, it can help create so-called safe cities to ensure we never lose an abducted child or a senile grandpa. <laughs> but if you aren't living in a democracy today, you might never have the chance to do so in the future. This technology in the hands of autocrats and would-be dictators can strengthen a police state, monitoring individuals and groups, stripping them of their privacy, and thereby giving government complete control over society. The implication for US democracy is that if we aren't careful with how our government uses artificial intelligence, the internet of things and quantum computing, we can also find our privacy eliminated and our freedom severely curtailed. So today, based on what I just laid out, we can consider several questions arising from this reality. And Mark, I'm gonna invite you to sort of pick and choose. So first, when do we stand up for freedom and democracy? How do we know if we're overreacting or quote underreacting? How should we regard new technologies that allow governments to increase power over citizens? Can technology be used to empower people instead? What rules are required to protect democratic values? What is more important, safety or privacy? And finally, most importantly, how can we make sure technology is not used to strip Americans of their independence? You remember when, when Donald Rumsfeld used to tell the reporters, well, the question you meant to ask was, you know, I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm at that <laughs> point already that, um, yeah, there's a lot of questions there. And, and really, I think that the, the key one is whether or not we can make sure that, you know, technology isn't used to strip Americans of their independence. And, and that's, that's a pretty broad question. And, and I'm reminded, you know, when I was thinking about your, what you were saying, I'm reminded by what Mark Twain said, um, you know, almost uh, or over a hundred years ago about the Gutenberg printing press. You know, he said it brought all these amazing uh, things that, that could be done in terms of, of science, technology, uh, dissemination of information, but it brought with it a fresh new hell. And that's technology. I mean, technology brings all that's good and all that is bad. I mean, think about, um, just think about what oppressive governments can do uh, with social media, with firewalls, with the internet. But these are the things that allow civil society to organize and to put forward information and to topple governments, you know, uh, or so at least try to topple side. It's, it's, it's always going to be a flip side. Um, but I, I thought, you know, rather you know, to pose a question to, to all of you is, what do we mean by privacy? 
I mean, we talk about, I mean, what, what I consider private is certainly not what a teenager considers private. Um, right. What the baby boomers before us uh, consider to be red lines in terms of privacy, uh, Fourth Amendment issues, all that may not be what, what the Gen Zers uh, who are up and coming now uh, believe is, is, is privacy. I mean, medical information. Okay, it was important to keep that private. Why? So it's not misused. So I, I think sometimes we, we worry so well, much about privacy, but we don't think about going after uh, how it's misused. You know, don't, don't blame the technology. Um, and I also think it's important to remember there's not a single solution. It's not like we're going to do one thing. We're not going to put regulations on, on Silicon Valley and then it's over. Everything right. is fine. I think it's interesting you mentioned the, the healthcare and privacy there. And Jim, I wonder if you want to jump in on this because Congress, and we all three of us worked in the Senate, um, and Congress was the one that passed a law mandating privacy for individuals when it comes to their healthcare information. So why just that information? Well, I, you know, uh, the, I think that the, the, the privacy in healthcare, I think it also gets tied up into the abortion debate, quite frankly. But I do think that what I think that both of you sort of have, have picked in the opposite ends of an interesting issue, which is, you know, with all due respect to Mark, to Mark Twain, uh, the printing press and the advent of uh, social uh, ranking scores like they're doing in China and the individual tracking of people down to the level of uh, tracking your, 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 your internet activity and what you're purchasing with your credit cards. And when you leave your house. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a level of surveillance that I think is really, really profound. If, if you know, as, as Evelyn was running through sort of her, 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 her essay there, I was thinking about, can you imagine if the King of England had had that kind of technology in 1772, 73, 74, right. 75, 76, the Boston massacre goes down a whole lot differently. Uh, if the, if the, if the British crown was able to reconstitute that story but, but in look, detail. Right. But look what Americans, look what the American propagandists are able to do with the Boston quote massacre, you know, with just printing presses and 18th century technology. Imagine <laughs> what they would have been able to do uh, with, with Twitter and Facebook on that. So I think, and, and I agree with you. I mean, the, the speed with which information can be disseminated, which is particularly important when we're talking about disinformation, and the, the reach uh, that that a that someone can have, and their ability to understand uh, every little detail about their target audiences, I, I think is revolutionary. Well, let me put it this today, way, but let but me put it still. Let me put it this way. Both sides. I, 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 I the the question fundamentally seems to be to be whether or not. The kind of technology, particularly the kind of surveillance technology that Evelyn is that Evelyn is talking about, is good for democracy, or, or is is worse for democracy than the upside of democracy. The upside of technology is for is for democracy, and on balance, given events in the last, let's even say the last five years, I think that technology, the way it's currently evolving, is worse for democracy. Uh, than it is good for democracy. And I would go so far as to say that, as Evelyn, I think, said in her essay, if you are not currently a democracy, the tools that authoritarian regimes have to oppress dissent and suppress those who would try to overturn that government are so vast and so pervasive and so 
invasive into what's happening in civil society that the 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 dangers of actually thinking about further democratic evolution are really difficult to imagine and i think this is a good point i definitely agree with china russia let's even take a you know uh, Iran, uh, or or let's look at a Turkey that's t- that's teetering, or a Hungary, or a Poland. But but I also think of Great Britain, where they've had surveillance technology that goes far beyond. Well, about they've had what we have now in big cities for decades, and I, I don't think you know Brit- British democracy doesn't seem to be as in poor a shape as U.S. democracy at this point. Now, granted, there are some additional restrictions on on freedom of expression in Britain that we don't have, but I'm not sure that they are things that the you know the average American or the average Brit isn't concerning themselves with the Official Secrets Act versus FOIA. Um, I, I think this you know that you want to look at what's going on now. Something struck me before on the uh, healthcare issue. There's the you know debate over. Uh, I, I've heard a debate recently where someone said to me, "Well, you can't ask me whether or not I've been vaccinated." Well, a- actually, you can. That's not covered by HIPAA. Also, HIPAA only applies to physicians acronym but this is the health privacy act right that's right you know it it doesn't say that uh i can't as an individual say hey uh, evelyn had the flu you know no it's not what it's saying it's about the doctor disclosing or insurance company disclosing but but the point is that wouldn't it be great if we could know instantly whether people in our area you know are uh have been vaccinated or i take my kid to a playground and I look at my app on my iPhone and it says, oh, hey, you have some unvaccinated people uh, here. Okay, well, let me put the mask on for the kids. Think about what that can do for public safety uh, or public health and public safety. But on the other hand, there's some people who say, oh my God, that's so intrusive. Well, well, I think it doesn't because, have to have their names. It can just say in, that people okay, exist. But, so this is again, the rub because th- you have privacy butting up against public safety. And so public safety, is tends to trump, although interestingly, in the example you cited in America today, that does not appear to be likely to happen. But it does appear likely to happen when it comes to having surveillance cameras on buildings. Um, increasingly, your car will be able to surveil what other people are doing. We already know if people are walking through your neighborhood, you can use that camera and turn it over to the, to the police. Um, so, so we already have the ingredients for increased surveillance in the interest of security and, and obviously at the, at the expense of privacy. And I think if we don't have legislation and laws in place, there will be a temptation to misuse this, to go all the way. And I think it's, it's like a lot, any technology or any power that the government has, it needs to be harnessed. It needs to be bound by our values bound well, by other considerations. Yeah, I think any technology has the potential for misuse. And, and then I'll give an example. What is it? The, the, one of the latest things are, uh, and you alluded to is the video cameras on everybody's doorbell uh, or security cameras. I mean, we have we have a, um, a bed and breakfast in the neighborhood. Uh, that security camera has caught so many bike and car thieves and break, you know, because it's there. I mean, that's a good thing. On the other hand, you know, I could think of, you know, 10 years, I could see some teenagers uh, at the time who are now little toddlers, uh, maybe misusing something like that. Um, f- you know, what is it now that um, uh, Amazon wants to be able to use a little bit of the bandwidth on everybody's devices? 
to help find uh, uh, to, to help with Wi-Fi or uh, Apple's new uh, little thing that will help you find your iPhone if you lose it actually requires a little bit of bandwidth from everybody in the you know who has an, uh, an iPhone. So I think there's always going to be this um, ability to misuse technology. The question is, how do we, uh, it may be hard to preclude it, but how do we reduce the likelihood that it will be misused or mitigate the impacts? In other words, um, okay, there are going to be people who misuse the technology, but where do we really need to focus any sort of local, state, or federal regulation? Is it on the technology itself? Is it on how it's used? I mean, should there be um, you know, uh, criminal uh, fines and charges uh, for, for those who misuse the technology. Well, but it, so I mean, so I think that there we got to we got to talk about this in some sort of specific context because how the United States or the United Kingdom or how other advanced Western democracies with a long tradition of 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 individual rights respond to the the advent of this kind of technology is different than the way authoritarian regimes and authoritarian governments uh, are going to respond to the, the, the opportunities offered by this technology to attract dissent and dissidents uh, in, 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 their, in, their, in their regimes. Um, I, I don't know that we're going to solve this today, uh, but it's definitely a conversation that we'll keep having as the podcast moves forward. Yeah, and, and, and the reason I brought it up is because it's, it's an issue now and it's an issue that's going to be, you know, uh, increasingly challenging for us as the technology continues to evolve and we are going to inevitably be racing to catch up as a society. You know, I'd make one last point on this. It was a great survey done by uh, the Pew Research Center uh, a couple of years ago, uh, 2019. And one of the questions had to do with whether or not Americans actually understood what companies do with the data that's collected. And almost... Uh, 60% uh, of those surveyed had no idea what's done with the data when companies use it. And almost 80% had no idea what the government does when they have the data. So Americans don't even understand yet whether it's innocuous or, or problematic. And, and, and that means we may not either. And I think, you know, educating people about the, the data use um, is going to be key to understanding whether the American people believe the risks outweigh the benefits. Right. And I mean, there there have been stories of governments, US, South Korean, using televisions to spy on people. Um, and also the these devices, Alexa and Google and these home devices, I personally have a Bose because I think <laughs> that maybe there's no Bose guy um, listening, but I could also be wrong because it goes on wi wireless. So I think we have laid, we have teed up a really interesting set of questions and a confounding overriding challenge to democracy today one that doesn't have a simple yes or no answer and we look forward to continuing to delve into it in the future Each week, we're going to take a few seconds at the end of each episode to talk about the top story in democracy this week. So, Dr. Farkas, do you want to get us started? Yes, Dr. Ludus. So, the story that caught my attention was the closing of Apple Daily in Hong Kong. So, this is a daily newspaper which combines kind of um, gossipy pieces for the average reader. Um, with some a little bit more liberal content. So 
more supporting pro-democracy in Hong Kong. And so for obvious reasons, the owner and the publisher and the you know top staff knew that their days were probably numbered, but basically the, the Chinese government, the Communist Party effectively silenced the paper. Um, they raided, they froze their bank accounts, they raided the offices and arrested top editors. And this is a sad moment. It's a sad moment, obviously, for Chinese in Hong Kong, as well as in the mainland. It's, I think, also a sad moment and indictment on the United Kingdom and the West, because in the turnover of Hong Kong to China, there were certain uh, certain freedoms that were supposed to be respected and they haven't been and we have not done a good job helping the people of Hong Kong with that. So that's my that's my story. It's a bit depressing, but there you have it. Do you have a sense? I mean, what 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 could the West do? What could democracies do now to support both a the people of Hong Kong, but also this newspaper, which is closing shop? I think there's nothing we can do really for the newspaper, for the people of Hong Kong. Obviously, taking people in in who are refugees, political refugees from Hong Kong, so giving them a place to live uh, in the United States and elsewhere. I would say, honestly, the next target for the Chinese is going to be Taiwan. So we need to really work hard to provide security and political support to Taiwan. The Chinese consider Taiwan part of the um, part of there of China, and even though Taiwan, of course, is a is an independent country on its own, and it's a democracy, and the United States has an agreement to support Taiwan to come to its aid in in the event that it's attacked by China, which you know we've counted on as a deterrent to Beijing taking aggressive action against Taiwan. But if they want to suppress any kind of opposition to the Communist Party coming from an ethnic Chinese source that's going to be, they're going to have eyes on Taiwan. Although there are ethnic Chinese all over, including in the United States, again, who will provide support. And many of us who are not ethnic Chinese will provide support to those dissidents who remain or, or to the idea of democracy in Hong Kong and China. Dr. Jacobson, your top story of the week. So there's a great piece in social media today uh, about Facebook developing an AI powered system that allows users to replace text and existing images, including entire background scenes. And it, it looks to be a significant advancement on current text replication models. And on a good on the good side, it could help in the translation of text within images. Think of 18th, 17th, 16th century documents, whether in English or other languages, enable users to even interpret uh, handwritten signs uh, in the other languages, not just type. And of course, you know, you can have fun with it and create some personalized messaging and captions. But of course, now we get to the Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park. Uh, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they should, uh, whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about whether they should, because this could be misused. Um, the article goes on to point out that people could now easily remove watermarks from old photos or documents, or they could put in a watermark, a you know, great uh, sort of tactic of, of uh, uh, Soviet forgery during the Cold War. Um, you could also alter the meaning of an old college photo of, uh, let's say, a political candidate holding a sign. So now they're promoting, let's say, an offensive slogan rather than the actual message. So this is a, a step forward um, for technology, but also a step forward for deep fakes, which I think is really challenging when it comes to uh, trying to understand what is objective truth in, in, in the world today. 
And democracy, of course, depends upon access to truth. You have to agree on the same set of facts. And the, the problem is that um, technology is allowing us to do a great deal more. It's no longer just, you know, literally the old cut and paste of, of the 20th century for altering photos. Um, but we've seen the deep fakes, some of which look like deep fakes. But, but nowadays, I mean, think about that. Someone could change a photograph that few Americans or, or few Europeans have seen of a historical event. We've already seen how the Russians are trying to whitewash uh, World War II history. Now they can whitewash the documents and say, see, look, this didn't happen. We never signed a pact with, with, uh, with the Germans. There was no Molotov-Ribbentrop pact uh, to divide Poland. Uh, it's, it's all fake. Here's the, here are the real documents. Well, I'll give you my last uh, top story of the week, and, and that has to do with the inability of the United States Senate to move any meaningful legislation on voting rights. So the House of Representatives passed the For the People Act earlier this year that came before the Senate recently, uh, and uh, the Senate wasn't able to even move to debate. Um, this is against the context that of, of an increasing number of states uh, passing restrictions on who can vote and how you can vote. Uh, the Brennan Center for Justice uh, says that there have already been 14 states that have enacted 22 new laws just this year, uh, and that there are 61 bills with restrictive provisions moving through at least 18 state legislatures. So the states, we know that they control uh, the, the, the elections in their own uh, in, within their own uh, within their own borders, uh, I think the question for the United States and for our citizens is whether or not there ought to be minimum standards of access to the vote uh, that ought to be enforced and, and and required at the federal level, and that's really what the For the People Act was trying to accomplish. And so it's incredible to me that the Senate, you know, all three of us worked in the United States Senate. I have incredible reverence for its rules, its traditions. Uh, and its reputation, uh, at least historically, as the world's greatest deliberative body. But the fact that they are unable to even debate voting rights seems to me to be a real moment of crisis in our democracy. And, and it's really a step backwards because we know the Civil Rights Act, that legislation was drafted with the full understanding that states did not equally support, did not equally um, stand up for, protect the rights of everyone to vote, specifically Black Americans. So it's appalling that this is being done right now, and especially in those states where they are, I mean, appear to be targeting minorities again. So Blacks, Hispanics, etc. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I'm. I think this is a, a horrible uh, look for the GOP. I think historically. Um, you know, this is going to go down as one of those moments such as, uh, you know, trying to stand up against the integration of schools. Uh, at the same time, I think there, there is a bit of a silver lining here. Uh, I don't think SR, uh, SR1 was, was viable, or I'm sorry, S1 was viable. I think um, HR4, the alternative, the, the restoration of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is, is a better pathway. I, I don't think either bill is perfect. I'm a believer in compromise, you know. I, I'm not saying you have to have uh, you know, a hundred votes in the Senate, but it wouldn't be nice. It would be nice to have 55, 60, 70, something that can actually get done. And I think what's actually what's happened here is um, uh, that that uh, the White House, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, have given the, the far left or the progressive left uh, their chance, and uh, now they can go try and find some sort of compromise legislation. I was certainly heartened to see that Mansion 
uh, allowed for debate. Senator that would Manchin. be yeah, that would be ridiculous for him not to have voted for debate. I mean, who votes against debate? Uh, that, well, that's, that's fifty members of the GOP. But exactly. that's a conversation for another day. Uh, uh, Mark and Evelyn, we've we've done it. We've come to the end of our first uh, Radio Democracy podcast. Congratulations! Woo! Woo. <laughs> we uh, we want to thank everybody who listened to us. Uh, we'll be back uh, most weeks uh, with a new episode of Radio Democracy. We thank you for joining us now. We hope you'll join us again. This is Radio Democracy. <laughs>